Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Thus far, we've covered Matthew chapters 1 through 4, but in this video, as in the last video, I'm wanting to hit the metaphorical pause button. And that's because I really want us to take some time exploring Matthew's use of Old Testament quotations throughout his gospel. And the main reason I'm doing that is because it's my firm conviction that if we actually understand these Old Testament quotations in their original context, we'll see that Matthew is actually communicating something much richer than we can just understand by looking at those verses in isolation. And I think that this is something that Matthew's original audience would have understood because I think that they would have been more familiar with the Old Testament context of these passages than the typical modern day Christian typically is. And so that's one thing that I just really feel convicted about as we've been going through this series. And so as a result, we've been going through it a little bit slower than I originally anticipated, but I think that's totally fine because I think that in the long run, it's going to give us a better understanding of Matthew's gospel and ultimately his purposes that he's trying to accomplish through his gospel. And so in last week's video, what we did is we looked at Jesus' use of the Old Testament during the temptation narrative that we saw at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, whenever Jesus is basically combating the devil. And we got to see how Jesus used the Old Testament well, and how the devil misused the Old Testament scriptures, and how it's important for us to understand scripture in context so that we can apply it correctly, and how that really just served to highlight the character of Jesus and his worthiness to sit on the throne of the entire universe, basically. But what I want to do specifically today is I want to go and I want to look at the prophecies that Matthew lists out in Matthew chapters 3 and 4. We did the same thing when we were in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, where there were a bunch of prophecies that he cited back there. I believe there were five prophecies that he cited. And in these chapters, we're actually going to look at four different prophecies, both this week and next week. When you're actually reading through the chapters, you'll notice that Matthew actually only cites two prophecies directly, but there's two other prophecies that he alludes to, and I want to explore those two in these videos. And so we're only going to tackle two of these today because the first two prophecies that Matthew either cites or alludes to in Matthew chapters 3 and 4 have to deal with the ministry of John the Baptist. And so we're going to talk about that today and then going into next week, we'll actually talk about the second two prophecies which have to deal with the ministry of Jesus. And so that's kind of our game plan for today. And we're going to look at these first two that you see on the screen before you today. And uh, just really quickly, I guess I can just kind of read to you what they are. Uh, the first one is the aspect of John being the voice crying in the wilderness. And this is the one that Matthew directly quotes, because whenever we see John the Baptist showing up on the scene, this is what Matthew says at the beginning of chapter three. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So we're going to look at that one momentarily, and we're going to just break down the context of the book of Isaiah, which we've kind of looked at a lot already in these videos, because Isaiah is very crucial to Matthew's gospel. We're going to look at that context and figure out what exactly Matthew is communicating there. But there's also a second prophecy that many people have drawn attention to, but very few people that I've seen, at least online, uh, people do this a lot in commentaries and more scholastic material, but I have seen very few people online talking about this. But this second prophecy is a much more subtle one that the original Jewish audi audience of Matthew's gospel would have picked up on, but 
oftentimes we might just overlook uh, because it's very subtle and understated and Matthew doesn't explicitly call it prophecy. But in verse 4, immediately following this quotation of prophecy about John being the voice in the wilderness, he also says that John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now there's a lot about that you could break down. We're not going to break down every aspect of it, but the main thing we're going to talk about today is how this identifies John the Baptist with the prophet Elijah. There's some connective tissue there that we need to break down and we need to talk about the implications of that and what Matthew is asserting about John and his role in the greater kingdom narrative that he is establishing. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And then next week, we're going to look at the second two prophecies there. And I'll just break those down when we get there. But for now, let's look at this first prophecy about John the Baptist, the one that Matthew explicitly cites. To read it again, this is what Matthew says. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, what Matthew is quoting here is he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 at the very beginning of this chapter. And one thing that you need to understand just about the general context and structure of Isaiah is that practically all scholars and pastors and anybody who studies the book of Isaiah agrees that the book is broken down into two primary sections, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. In this way, it kind of parallels the structure of the Bible, which has the Old Testament, which is 39 books, and then the New Testament, which is 27 books. And so the first section of Isaiah is 39 chapters, and the second section is 27 chapters. So it kind of has that similar parallel. Uh, don't read too much into that, but it's kind of cool that that's kind of how it worked out. Uh, but uh, whenever you look at the structure of Isaiah, you'll see the chapters 1 through 39 are primarily focused on the looming judgment that is coming upon the people of Judah as a result of the Assyrian invaders and the Assyrian forces that are coming in. And throughout that whole section, God is telling them, hey, don't trust in foreign powers, don't trust in anything else, trust in me and I will be with you. And so you have this lingering promise throughout the whole section of chapters 1 through 39 that God will be with his people. Emmanuel, God with us, right? And this is basically Isaiah's entire call to action. He is telling the people of Israel, hey, if you don't trust God, he will discipline you and he will judge you. And Isaiah lists out all these different judgments that are going to fall on all the other people and saying, Judah, if you don't trust in God, this same thing is going to happen to you. And so at the very end, as we reach the end of this whole long narrative, like this long section, uh, in chapters 36 and 37, we get a break from the prophetic oracles and we get a narrative about King Hezekiah who does trust in God. And as a result of his trust in God and his faithfulness to God, the Assyrians are just sent back home, right? God defeats them in a battle and they go back home and King Sennacherib, he's ultimately taken out of the picture, right? So God was with them as a result of Hezekiah's faithfulness. But then you get to those final two chapters of this whole section, chapters 38 and 39, and Hezekiah makes a big boo-boo and he does something bad. And because of his pride, God says, okay, I spared you from the Assyrians, but because you were unfaithful to me and because you were so arrogant, I'm going to send somebody even worse upon you. I'm going to send the Babylonians and they're going to take your children into captivity and take you into exile and your children will die in exile. That is where chapter 39 ends off. So it's a very sad end to that whole section. But then we get to Isaiah chapter 40 and this is what we read. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her 
that her warfare has been fulfilled, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. So in light of this promise of future exile at the hand of the Babylonians, God tells Isaiah to comfort the people. And he says, don't worry, I'm going to send you into exile, but I will bring you back. Once you have paid in the punishment for your actions, and once you have been disciplined, I will bring you back home. A voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. And so right here, we have Isaiah being told to comfort the people, and he hears a voice crying out on the wilderness, right? The wilderness representing a place of exile, right? The people, like you, here's a, there's a voice in the wilderness, and that voice is telling the people to get themselves ready to come back home, right? Prepare the way for the Lord. God is going to show up and he is going to lead a massive new second exodus, just like he took the people out of Egypt and brought them back home. So he will come find them in the midst of their exile and he will bring them back home. Every valley should be lifted up. Every mountain should be made low, right? You're smoothing out the path, making it as clear as possible so that they can directly come from exile back home as quickly as possible. That is what this voice is calling for the people to do. And if you were to keep reading through chapter 40, uh, this is where Isaiah just highlights the amazingness and the power of God and his ability to do this. And he says, did you not know? Have you not heard? God is all powerful, right? He is the one who spans the heavens. And at the very end of that section, it says, those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength, right? They will fly on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The imagery is of exiles engaging in the second exodus and coming back home. In verse 3 is the verse that Matthew cites as being fulfilled by John the Baptist. So let's break that down. First off, let's just summarize the original context, which I just did, but it's helpful to just kind of have a concise summary. First off, as a result of King Hezekiah's faithfulness, the looming threat of Assyria comes to its end when Yahweh defeats Sennacherib and his men around 712 BC. That's Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. When you get to chapters 38 and 39, though... Due to Hezekiah's pride, Yahweh promises that a greater adversary, Babylon, will destroy the land and take the people of Judah into exile. He does tell Hezekiah that Hezekiah himself won't have to endure this, though. It's going to be his descendants. And sure enough, this isn't going to happen for over another hundred years. It's not going to be till 586 BC that the people of Judah will be taken into exile in Babylon. In light of this looming judgment, Yahweh promises comfort for his people. Though he disciplines her, he will not abandon her. Right? So God reassures them, and even in Isaiah's time period, he's saying, guys, I'm going to send you into exile, you're going to be disciplined for your sin, but in the long run, I will restore you to me. All because I'm sending you away does not mean I'm abandoning you. I'm still going to be with you. From the wilderness, Isaiah hears a voice crying out to prepare the way for King Yahweh, who arrives triumphantly to bring, bring about a second exodus. This is also important for us to understand. The imagery that Isaiah is employing whenever he says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, he is speaking of Yahweh, right? In Hebrew, the word is prepare the way for Yahweh. He is the one who is showing up. You're preparing the way for him. But the imagery is royal imagery of a king showing up, right? That This is what people would do. That people would go out and whenever a king was coming into town, they would send messengers ahead of them saying, hey, get the place ready, right? Clean up the streets, 
raise up the valleys, clear out the paths, make sure that the king doesn't have to face any unnecessary obstacles when he shows up. You want to make a good impression whenever the king arrives, right? Raise the valleys up, lower down the mountains, make the path as easily navigable as possible for the king so that when he arrives, he is pleased with you, right? That is what this voice is calling people to do, right? He is saying, repent and make the way ready so that God can show up as a king to bring you back home, right? So the imagery is of Yahweh himself, God of Israel. He is the king of Israel who arrives to bring about the second exodus and bring his people back home. The voice cries for God's people to do everything necessary to prepare for their God's arrival so his glory can be revealed and he can bring his people home. And then the rest of the chapter goes on to display just God's glory and how powerful he is and how worthy he is to be prepared for, right? He is the one who spans the heavens. He is the one who created everything. Do you not know? Have you not heard? This God is the living God. Prepare the way for him, right? That is the original context of Isaiah. So the next question we have to ask is, is this messianic? And I would say that the text isn't messianic as we typically think of the term messianic, right? Whenever we think of messianic prophecies, typically we think of a text that you can look at and just explicitly say, oh yes, this is very clearly about the Messiah. I don't think that the original Jewish readers would have immediately associated this with the Messiah because there's nothing in it that explicitly says Messiah other than the fact that it is royal imagery, but it's specifically talking about people preparing the way for God. At the same time, it does evoke kingdom language, and the voice in the wilderness is described as performing a similar function to Malachi's messenger who prepares the way for the Messiah, though Malachi wrote after the exile. This is important for us because we're going to visit this momentarily, and we're going to look at a prophecy made by Malachi after the exile, where Malachi is clearly alluding back to this prophecy and saying that that messenger has still yet to arrive, even though the people have come back from Babylon. Further, after the people returned from exile, Yahweh never returned to his temple, so the text awaited future fulfillment. Though the people returned from Babylon, their exile endured. Whenever you read the text of Isaiah, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, let all the mountains be uh, lowered down, let all the valleys be raised up. And the reason why you do this is so that Yahweh can reveal his glory. And so you would expect that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy would not merely be the people returning from exile, but God coming to dwell in his temple once again. But that's not what happened. Whenever the people came back from exile, they dwelt in the land, they rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the temple, but God never came back to the temple to dwell in it as he once did. It was actually a kind of disappointing thing. And so there is still this future await, like there still is this future aspect to it that remains unfulfilled even at the time of Christ, where the people have come back from exile, but they're still waiting for this voice in the wilderness to prepare the way for Yahweh to show up on the scene. They have returned from physical exile, but they still feel spiritually exiled because God's presence does not dwell with them as it once did. And so you can see now how Matthew might be employing this. So let's look at Matthew's context. John the Baptist gains popularity in the wilderness of Judea, calling people to repentance and announcing a coming kingdom. Sound familiar? Matthew cites this as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, right? You have a person known for a loud voice in the wilderness telling people to repent, to prepare the way for God's arrival, right? A kingdom is about to show up. Hmm, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew looks at this and he says, this is the voice crying in the wilderness. And Matthew's not alone here. All four of the Gospels identify John as this character, and they each quote this prophecy in, in relationship to John the Baptist. 
Matthew describes John in details that identify him as Malachi's messenger, who prepares the way for Yahweh and his Messiah. That's what we're going to see in verses 4 through 6, which we're about to explore more in depth. John's message consists of calls to radical transformation and preparation for one who comes after him and yet is greater than him. These are things that are very consistent with the voice that Isaiah identified. And so this is how we conclude that Matthew is using this prophecy. Firstly, John is the voice that breaks 400 years of silence, a new prophet who pronounces a new kingdom, bridging the gap between what was before and what is to come, right? Uh, some people have described John as the last Old Testament prophet in the first New Testament Christian. Uh, John is the one who bridges the gap between the Old and the New Testament. For 400 years, God had been silent. John is the one who shows up on the scene with a loud voice, crying in the wilderness, breaking 400 years of silence. Nobody has spoken since the prophet Malachi. But now John the Baptist shows up and he says, guys, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he says, the old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Everybody get ready. It's about to, like things are about to get serious, right? Things are about to change. A new thing is happening. Behold, God is doing a new thing. That is what John shows up and does. So he is the voice that breaks 400 years of silence. In addition to this, John is in the wilderness calling God's exiled people to prepare for a new greater exodus. Right? So you can see how every element of this is crucial to what Matthew is communicating about John. Not only is he the voice, but the wilderness imagery that Isaiah employs is super crucial for understanding what this is all about. The wilderness throughout scripture represents exile and a time of testing. The people of Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness um, in between being in Egypt and coming to the promised land. Right? That was a time of testing, a time of exile, a time of discipline and punishment. And now John is in the wilderness again, calling God's exiled people to prepare for a new greater exodus. But this time they won't be delivered from Egypt or Babylon, but from their sins. The people of Israel are dwelling in the land of Israel, but according to John, they're still in exile. And so he calls them to come to him in the wilderness. Right, They have to step out of Israel, and then they have to pass through the Jordan River and re-enter into Israel, right? Just like the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness crossed the Jordan River and entered into it after the wilderness wanderings. Just like David, whenever he fled from Absalom, he crossed the Jordan River and then he had to cross back in in order to come back from his exile. Just like the exiled Jews, they came back, they had to cross the Jordan River in order to go back into the land, right? This is exactly what we see again and again and again. You go into the wilderness and that's a time period of exile. And then you re-enter into the land as a new person. So John is calling them to recognize that they need to be exiled, right? He's calling them to sober-mindedly recognize that they are sinners who, even though they're born of Abraham, and even though they are the seed of Abraham and they are children of Abraham and they are Israelites and they might even try to follow the law, despite all that, they are sinners who need to repent and they have been exiled from God, an exile that didn't just begin when the Babylonians came. It's an exile that began in the Garden of Eden. And that exile is about to come to an end. They need to recognize this. They need to come into the wilderness. And then they need to repent and be baptized by the waters of the Jordan River and re-enter into the land of Israel as new people who have identified themselves as an exiled people coming home. That's what Matthew is identifying John as. They're going to be delivered from their sins. John calls the people to prepare the way for Yahweh, suggesting that God is about to show up and do something powerful. Yet by his own admission, he isn't just preparing the way for Yahweh, 
whenever John talks about it, he's preparing the way for the Messiah, right? He says, one who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That's the language found in the gospel of John, but it's the same thing communicated in the gospel of Matthew when he says, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. So John says that he's preparing the way for a man. But if you look at the context of Isaiah, the voice prepares the way for God. And so if you're looking at this, you're trying to reconcile it and you're not going to immediately come to the conclusion that the Messiah is God because ultimately the Messiah is the one who brings about the kingdom of God. And so you could say that the Messiah is just a man, yet he is still representing God, right? You could say that. But I think that what Matthew is doing is he's laying the groundwork for a greater revelation of the nature of the Messiah. And we're going to see the same thing in the next prophecy we're about to explore. Perhaps the Messiah will be more than the Jewish people expected. Maybe whenever the voice prepares the way for the Messiah and the voice prepares the way for God, he's preparing the way for the same person. John helps the people make his paths straight. He precedes the king in order to make the necessary accommodations, in this case, repentance, for his arrival, right? So he is the forerunner who shows up on the scene and he makes sure that everything is ready for the king's arrival. In the context of Isaiah, the king is Yahweh himself who comes to deliver his people from exile. In the context of Matthew, the king is Jesus, which might seem to suggest that Jesus is Yahweh and that he is God. And so John shows up to prepare the way so that when the king shows up, he has the necessary preparations in order to engage in his ministry of salvation in a successful manner, right? John is the hellfire brimstone guy who convicts people and gets people ready so that Jesus can show up and show mercy and love and salvation to those who would receive him. That is what Matthew is communicating through citing this prophecy. Okay, but now that we've covered this one, let's look at the next prophecy we have right here because this one is a little more subtle, but I think it communicates very much the same message and goes even more in depth. And it's actually even more beautiful if you catch on to it. And it all goes to this one verse right here, which immediately follows the last prophecy that Matthew cited. He says, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now you might read this, and this might not seem like it is inherently prophetic, but you'll see where I'm heading if you just stick with me. Uh, because right here, it just seems like John uh, that Matthew is just describing what John wore. And you might say, why is that significant? Why does his diet matter? Why does his clothing matter? Why does his apparel even matter? And how is that in any way prophetic? Well, what we're going to see is that John is intentionally stepping into a role and he is playing the part of somebody that was prophesied in scripture. In order to understand this though, we need to look at the book of Malachi, starting in chapter three with verse one. This is God speaking. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Right off the bat, you can see that this is calling back to Isaiah, right? God is talking and he is saying that he is going to send some sort of messenger to prepare the way for him. It's the same exact language, right? A voice in the wilderness preparing the way for Yahweh. Same imagery. So he's talking about the same guy, but Malachi, keep in mind, is writing after the return from exile. Malachi is the last prophet of the entire Old Testament. The people have returned from exile, yet that messenger still has not arrived. Malachi is dwelling in the rebuilt Jerusalem, but the messenger has still not arrived. The people are still, in some sense, in exile. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The word for Lord there is not Yahweh, but Adonai, right? So the messenger will prepare the way for Yahweh, and then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So is the Lord here referencing God, or is it referencing the Messiah? 
right? Because typically whenever you see this word showing up in Malachi, it shows up with the Lord Yahweh, right? And so it's identifying Yahweh. But right here, it's not as clear. It could be referencing the Messiah because they are seeking the Messiah and they're waiting for him and they've been waiting for him since Genesis. But it also could be referencing Yahweh because it just said that the messenger prepares the way for Yahweh. So is it Yahweh or is it the Messiah? I don't know. You have to figure out where you land there. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Oh, well, now it sounds like this is Yahweh, right? He's suddenly coming to his temple. But maybe it's the Messiah showing up in his temple. But they've been waiting for Yahweh to show up in his temple because he hasn't shown up how he did before. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. All right, the messenger of the covenant. Are we talking about the Messiah or are we talking about God? This is talking about the new covenant, obviously, because this is what's been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophecies. But who is the messenger of the covenant? Because this sounds like it's a person. Hmm. Interesting. The reason I'm asking all this is because if you're a Jewish person reading the book of Malachi, this should get you kind of itching your head and wondering. And the messenger of this covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a smelter's fire, like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to Yahweh offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh, as in the ancient days and in former years. So apparently, this messenger of the covenant and this Lord whom they seek is separate from Yahweh in some weird sense, because he's going to show up and he is going to be a physical person who judges the people and gets them ready to give good sacrifices so that they can be pleasing to God as they were formerly. But it's weird because the messenger prepares the way for Yahweh, but then this guy shows up. Hmm. It's interesting. So most people would land that this is talking about the Messiah, but there doesn't seem to be a huge disconnect between the Messiah and Yahweh in this passage. And then sure enough, it says, then I, Yahweh, will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So God promises that he is going to show up and he will judge. Very similar language to what the Messiah was just described as doing in the previous verses. But then what he goes on to do is he further rebukes the people for a bit, and then we get to the final six verses of Malachi. Chapter four is only six verses long, and I'm going to read the entirety of it right now. And you've got to keep in mind, these are the final promises of the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament. These were the final words that the people heard from God for 400 years till John the Baptist showed up on the scene. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every worker of wickedness will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them aflame says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, and on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. Remember the law of Moses my servant, even the statutes and judgments which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. So God says, the day of judgment is coming, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And when I show up, you'd better be ready. So keep my law, meditate on my law, remember my law, live by my law, so that when I show up, you can be pleasing to me. And then this is the final prophecy that the people heard for 400 years. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Yahweh. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, devoting it to destruction. 
So God says, before I show up, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet who will lead a mass revival and mass repentance to prepare the way for me so that when I show up, I don't have to destroy everybody. So before this day of judgment, don't worry, I'm going to be faithful and I will restore y'all and I will bring about mass revival so that I don't have to break my covenant and destroy the people of Israel and Judah. That is what God promises right here. And then he goes silent for 400 years. And the final promise that these people receive is that there's this, going to be this messenger who prepares the way for Yahweh and who prepares the way for the Messiah. And that messenger is Elijah the prophet. But here's the deal. These people were not living in the 21st century like we are. And so nobody had a picture of Elijah the prophet right? It's not like we could just look it up and be like, all right, I'm just waiting for Elijah the prophet to show up and I'm just going to like, you know, hold up a picture next to the guy and see if he looks like him. They didn't have that, right? Instead, they had to figure out how do I identify Elijah the prophet when he shows up? Because that's the next big things God's going to do before the Messiah shows up and before he shows up for the day of judgment. And so this is what they waited for, for 400 years. They were looking for Elijah the prophet to show up, but they didn't have a Polaroid picture to hold up next to him. They didn't have any digital images. They didn't have any videos. So instead, what they did is they had to search the Old Testament scriptures and figure out what was Elijah like? What was his character like? What were the things that he did? What did he dress like? And sure enough, we have a description of what he dressed like in 2 Kings chapter one. And keep in mind, it's very rare that we actually have physical descriptions of people in the Bible. For instance, we don't even know what Jesus looked like. The only thing we know is that he had a beard. And that's because during his crucifixion and stuff like that, we read that they were ripping his beard out, right? We don't know physical descriptions of practically anybody in the Bible, because that's just not really a primary concern of the Bible. The Bible is far more concerned with what you hear than what you see. And so we just don't see a lot of physical descriptions of people. But we do get a brief physical description of Elijah the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 1. We read this. And the messenger said to Ahaziah, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent to you and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, what kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they said to him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle girded about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So King Ahaziah receives this news and he says, who's the one who told you this? And these people say, we don't know the guy's name, but we can describe him to you. He was a super hairy dude who wore a leather girdle. He wore a leather belt. And apparently... Elijah was such a different looking figure and he was so unique in his appearance that as soon as Ahaziah hears this, he says, oh, hairy, hairy dude with leather girdle. That's Elijah the Tishbite. Now take that information and go back to what Matthew said in chapter three. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Why is that significant? He's playing the part of Elijah. The people have been waiting for Elijah to show up to prepare the way for the Messiah and to prepare the way for Yahweh and to pronounce the coming kingdom and judgment of God. John, he knows that Elijah was a hairy dude, so he dresses up in a hairy garment. He knows that Elijah wore a leather belt, so he puts on a leather belt. He knows that Elijah called people to repentance. He calls people to repentance. He knows that Elijah was a lone figure dwelling in the wilderness. He became a lone figure dwelling in the wilderness. 
John the Baptist intentionally identifies himself as Elijah in order to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi. So, just to recap, the original context. After the return from exile, Yahweh tells the people that he will send a messenger to prepare the way for his arrival, followed shortly thereafter by the Lord whom you seek, that is, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, who will arrive in his temple to judge the Levites and purify the offerings of Judah. Right? And once again, we've got to reconcile the idea, or we have to come to terms with the idea that the Lord whom you seek could reference the Messiah, but it also could reference Yahweh. In the immediate context before it, it sounds like it's describing Yahweh. In the immediate context after it, it sounds like it's describing the Messiah. So there seems to be some ambiguity there. In the meantime, Yahweh calls them to return to him, telling them to give their tithes and humble themselves and to keep his law. He also tells them to prepare for the day of judgment, when those who reject him will be burned like chaff and those who are faithful will be delivered. Until then, they should await the arrival of Elijah the prophet, who will lead mass repentance shortly before Yahweh himself arrives on the scene. This is the final prophecy of the entire Old Testament. I cannot accentuate to you how significant this is. The last time the people heard from a prophet, he told them, before God does the next big thing, before the Messiah shows up on the scene, before Yahweh shows up for his day of judgment, before the kingdom of God arrives, Elijah the prophet will show up and he will lead mass repentance and he will prepare you for his arrival so that when he arrives, you will not be destroyed. So if you're the people of Israel, for those 400 years of silence, you are waiting for Elijah. And when Elijah shows up, you know that you need to listen to him and repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. So is this messianic? Well, depending on who you identify as the Lord whom you seek, the text can be viewed as directly messianic, and it was interpreted as such by Jewish scholars at that time, right? They obviously identified that Elijah was going to show up to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And sure enough, even to this day, if you go to a Orthodox Jewish family's home during Passover, they always set aside a seat for Elijah. And usually at the beginning of the meal, one of the children will get up and go open the door just in case Elijah has dropped by to come visit them. The people of Israel are still waiting for Elijah to show up. We believe that Elijah already showed up because Jesus identified John as this. The text itself rings with messianic imagery. Malachi's messenger is clearly one and the same as Isaiah's voice crying in the wilderness, both of whom prepare the way for Yahweh. The messenger of the covenant alludes to the new covenant, which carries messianic overtones and is saturated with kingdom imagery. So even if you don't view the Lord whom you seek as being the Messiah, you can't deny the fact that the rest of the imagery is heavily royal imagery, messianic imagery, things that are consistent with other imagery that we see in other prophecies that are directly about the Messiah. There's a voice crying to prepare the way for the exiled people to come back home. There's a new covenant that is going to be established, and the one that this voice or this messenger is preparing the way for is going to be the messenger of that covenant. There's a lot of messianic imagery being employed in this. And these were the final words of the prophets until John the Baptist's arrival. So no wonder the people of Israel were so readily anticipating Messiah's arrival. Whenever you span those 400 years from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you've got to realize that the people of Israel that we encounter are a radically different and transformed people from the people that we left at the end of the Old Testament. These people have placed their entire hope in the arrival of this Messiah figure. And so... Whenever John the Baptist shows up on the scene, no wonder John the Baptist becomes so popular right off the bat because they look and they're like, this dude looks like Elijah. He sounds like Elijah. And even though we don't have any pictures of Elijah, this guy, he is nailing the part as far as we can tell. And so they listen to him because they know that this guy, when he calls you to repentance, 
you need to listen because the kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand. And that's exactly what John pronounces. So now let's look at that in Matthew's context. John the Baptist gains popularity in the wilderness of Judea, calling people to repentance and announcing a coming kingdom. Now you know why he was so popular, because people saw this and they're like, ah, we know who this is. This is the messenger of Malachi. Matthew identifies John as the voice mentioned by Isaiah. Matthew describes John as playing the part of Elijah, identifying him as Malachi's messenger who prepares the way for Yahweh. John's message consists of calls to radical transformation and preparation for one who comes after him and yet is greater than him. And then this is the main thing that you need to notice. Shortly after John's arrival, the Messiah shows up on the scene, right? So this is one major reason why Matthew would make this reference right here. He needs to identify John the Baptist as Isaiah's voice crying in the wilderness, and he needs to identify John the Baptist as the Elijah figure promised by Malachi, the messenger, because at the very least, this voice and this messenger prepares the way for the Messiah. At the most, he prepares the way for Yahweh himself. John the Baptist says that he's preparing the way for Jesus. So if you are the Jewish audience who is reading Matthew's gospel and you're looking at this, you're saying, okay, well, at the very least, Jesus is the Messiah. At the most, it's possible that Jesus is God himself. And that's ultimately where Matthew is wanting to lead them to. But I don't think they would necessarily arrive at that conclusion just in Matthew chapters 1 through 4. However, we've seen that throughout Matthew chapters 1 through 4, Matthew has been making that implication all the way, right? He is Emmanuel, God with us, right? What Matthew is suggesting is that maybe Jesus is more than just a king. Maybe he is the king of kings. and Maybe he's more than the king of kings. Maybe he is God in the flesh. And that's ultimately where we're going to see Matthew driving his audience to by the end of this gospel. So the way that Matthew uses the prophecy, John is the messenger, the new Elijah who prepares the way for Yahweh, the Messiah, the new covenant, and the coming judgment. This is what that new Elijah's primary role was. He prepared the way for God, for the king, for the new covenant the king would bring, and the ultimate coming judgment that would arrive. And that's exactly the imagery that John employs in his messages that he's preaching. John's ministry is the opening act, laying the groundwork for a coming kingdom as he leads massive revival, calls to repentance, and prepares God's people for the new thing that God is going to do, namely the establishment of his king and his kingdom, right? So another reason why Matthew would need to associate John the Baptist with the messenger is just to remind people that John the Baptist was not the main show. He was simply the opening act, right? He was the opener and Jesus was the main show, right? So a lot of people follow John the Baptist, and they might have thought that he was the main deal. Matthew's saying, no, he wasn't the main deal. He was simply the opening act. And then this is another thing that Matthew is trying to communicate, and I've already highlighted this. Both Isaiah and Malachi explicitly speak of this messenger or voice preparing the way for Yahweh. Matthew presents John as preparing the way for Jesus. Thus, he is laying the groundwork for a major theological claim about the nature of Messiah, namely that the Messiah wasn't merely a man, that the Messiah was God in the flesh. And this is why we need to understand these original contexts, because there's a lot of skeptics out there who will suggest that some of the Gospels never claimed Jesus was God. And you have to understand the original context of these passages to understand that you can't make that claim 
if you understand the Old Testament, right? The original Jewish audience, they would already be baffled by what Matthew is communicating here because he is basically heavily hinting at and suggesting something without just outright claiming it because he's trying to win them over to this idea, right? He has already quoted multiple things that hint at the idea that maybe this guy is God in the flesh, but he hasn't outright claimed it because if he said that so early on in his gospel, then they would immediately just turn away. Instead, he is laying the foundations of saying, he's basically saying, hey, the Old Testament established a precedent where maybe this Messiah figure isn't merely just a man. Maybe he is God in the flesh. And so he's just showing that that isn't against the Old Testament scriptures, right? Because if it's against the Old Testament scriptures, it can't be true. And so he's showing that that could be consistent with it. And then what we're going to see throughout the rest of the gospel is he's going to show how Jesus' teachings and his actions prove that he actually is God in the flesh. And so he needs that scriptural foundation in order to ultimately make that claim. And that's exactly what we see him accomplishing through the ministry of John the Baptist here. The voice in the wilderness and the messenger, they both prepare the way for Yahweh. John the Baptist prepares the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. And so if you're reading between the lines, he is asserting that Jesus might very well be Yahweh in the flesh. And you basically have to just keep on reading the book for him to explicitly make that clear. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate. This has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.